A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Quick note before we begin the show, things are tough all over, and they are tough and getting tougher here. Our commitment is this, like we're going to get through this and publish as we have promised to publish. And we are going to get through this with every job at Canada Land protected and surviving this ordeal. And the way that we're going to do that, it's not going to be through the advertising business that we're used to. We're experiencing the same things that everybody is. The way that we're going to get through this is because of you uh, with your help. That's the only way forward. If you do not support us, please support what we do. It has never been easier. It is, I think, pretty affordable if you are in a position to spend $5 a month on this podcast. If this podcast is a, a positive thing in your life as you get through this, you can click on the link in the show notes or you can go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join. And in a moment, you can be paying us $5 Canadian a month. You'll get ad-free versions of Canada Land every Monday and Thursday. And if you already support us, uh, but you want to give us some one-time help, you can send us money at support at CanadaLandShow.com through uh, an Interact e-transfer. Thank you. Chris Selly, columnist with Mary Brown's Chicken and Taters, presents the National Post. Joining me from an undisclosed location in rural Ontario. Hello. Hello, Jesse. Chris, today we are going to talk about my difficulties with numbers. Is it my fault or are the numbers to blame? And 
The Big Short in Canadian newspapers. Are publishers gaming government subsidies by taking money to maintain staff while also laying off staff? We'll talk about it. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Chris Montgomery, Joanna Hindle, Nancy Black, Bob Eaton, Taylor Radford, Kareem Gouda, Vashti King, and Amanda Hu. My name is Amanda, and I'm a consultant from Calgary, Alberta. I support Canada Land because now more than ever, we need critical examination of how the media is communicating information. We also need to seek out and support community-based journalism as connecting to our communities becomes more and more difficult in the age of social distancing. There are more than 15,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 across Canada. Here are the number of cases in Canada right now. More than 17,000 people have tested positive for COVID-19. More than 1,200 new cases were reported today. Countrywide, we're now closing in on 18,000 cases. And today, once again, the biggest jumps were in Ontario and Quebec. So Chris, like everybody, I'm hitting refresh every few minutes. I'm more of a news junkie than ever before. I'm drowning in news and I'm trying to find like the signal to noise ratio of all the stories out there, whether you're reading about masks or medical policy or or social distancing or the right way to buy groceries or who's price gouging. Like what I want to know is the answer to the core question, is this working? You know, I'm being a good boy. We're all trying to behave. We're all taking a hit. We're making sacrifices. We're struggling to stay on the level psychologically. We're struggling to stay on the level financially. We are living as citizens in a way that we're not used to living as citizens. Like we're pulling together for this common cause and that cause is flattening the curve. Are we flattening the curve? Is it working? That's the question I try to boil down to after going through all the news coverage. And my chief resource for determining whether or not today is a good day in flattening the curve is this page of statistics that the province of Ontario publishes every day, right? And I look at a specific number there, which is how many new cases today, and they started to tell you what percentage that represents of growth from the day before. And, you know, during the first couple of weeks of this uh, isolation period, it was just steadily hovering around the 20% number. It was going up by 20% every day, doubling every four days or so. And that's like an Italy... Spain trajectory. And then, then like three or four days ago, it just dropped down to like the 10% range was hovering a little bit under 10, a little bit over 10. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is the fruits of our labor. This is like, we started isolating and now the number is down. We're flattening the curve. And that's what I thought. And then I read a story by Mike Crawley of CBC. And what he reported was that Ontario has the lab capacity to run 13,000 tests a day, but we're only actually doing 3,500 tests a day. And that sent me on a spiral where I was questioning whether or not I have any insight into that core question of like, how's it going and are we flattening the curve? Can you help me out here? I'm not a numbers guy. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not somebody who's gone beyond grade 10 math. But I thought I was doing okay in informing myself, and now I'm kind of spinning out and not sure that I know what's what. Do you know what's what? No, I don't think I can help you. I mean, it is enormously frustrating, I think, and I haven't heard any logical explanation for why any jurisdiction would be testing below its capacity, or certainly that far below its capacity, 
unless it's just a matter that we don't have enough tests, which we know has been a problem, which is incredibly frustrating when one of many frustrations about a country and a province that was supposedly super ultra prepared for this. And now we see, you know, we don't have things as basic as masks or personal protective equipment, or at least we're, you know, we're struggling to acquire those things now. And the same with testing. I mean, it was true in Italy and it's been true in Spain. You know, any curve you look at has some of those, certainly in real time, has some of those limitations built in because you don't test the same number of people every day. Just through random chance, you're, you're going to test sort of quote unquote the wrong people or people who don't necessarily need to be tested. Uh, but certainly the fact that the number of tests in Ontario has plummeted is inexplicable from what I can see, except as a product of not having enough tests, which is really, really annoying. And as you say, there's no way around. I mean, if, if you, if you are trying to judge whether we're flattening the curve, there's no way to compensate for that if we don't have the tests because you know, the percentage of positive tests has never been higher. Mm -hmm. But that almost suggests that we're not testing the right people because maybe we're testing people who have obvious symptoms. I don't know. I mean, it's just impossible to know. And I'm not sure anyone knows because it's so many different people administering these tests, right, under very difficult circumstances. So it's probably something we're not going to know until the end. I mean, I would say that if you look at the overall trend in, across Canadian jurisdictions, and I think it's a good idea to look at not at national data, because that's just mashed up imperfect provincial data, but it's slightly less imperfect if you look at the provincial data. But if you if you take all those lines as a whole and look at the curves, it does seem to be starting downward. And maybe that's uh, an encouraging sign. But then Canada is a huge place, right? I mean, British Columbia is very different than Prince Edward Island. So no, I, I can't help you. <laughs> it's, it's, it is maddeningly difficult to be able to judge our progress. And as you say, we're putting our all our lives on hold. It would sure be nice to think that it's having the effect that it's supposed to have. I mean, just to try to like unspool all of that as best I can, you know, obviously we're, we're going from just the rational, if you're trying to figure out how many people got it today, you can only take that number from the number of people tested. And if we're testing less people than ever before, then you're not really counting how many people have it. You're just counting how many known people have it. And then we also know that the testing is imperfect and people who have it sometimes test negative and then later test positive. And then, you know, some of this is sort of like, because we don't know as much as we're going to later about the virus itself, but some of it is like, they have increased the capacity for testing while the number of tests are going down and it's still hard to get a test in Ontario. And then Chris, you cite the fact that like the mashup of different provinces, everything in the provinces are different. So it's, it's a complete apples to oranges thing when you're looking, okay, well, this province has this many new cases and this province has that, but they're all basing who to test on different criteria. And uh, what you emerge with is like, I'm just not sure what value it has at all. I'm trying to determine how much of this is like, should I just take the blame that I don't understand all this information that's coming at me? Is it the media's fault for just throwing too much conflicting information? And actually, as we dug into it, like, I think that the, our news organizations are trying really hard to give clear explainers. It's actually like we don't have the information. We we're talking about this here. I'm like, well, you know, you don't know who has it, who hasn't been tested. So what is perfect information? I thought, well, you know, this is kind of grim, but the death count should be, there's no reason why that can't be perfect statistical information, right? Like those numbers yeah. are small enough that like you would think that if somebody dies from this, I don't know much about, you know, post-death testing, but I think that's possible. I guess you'd have to test everybody who dies who might have died from it. 
But I'm told that even those numbers are dubious at this point. And some of this, I guess, is not something that you can kind of blame anyone for. But the fact that we're not testing anywhere near capacity in this province seems to me a cause for like a lot more public alarm than I'm sensing out there. In fact, it seems like here in Ontario, people are like, oh, Doug Ford's doing a great job. The authorities are really rising to the occasion. Yeah, it's. I've been, I think, more negative in the columns I've written than, than most pundits. And that's not necessarily, I'm uh, not boasting or anything, but, you know, my email every morning is just a cavalcade of people with husband and wife email accounts yelling at me for being too negative. And some people being very nice and positive as, as well about my work. But um, there is certainly, I think, this powerful kind of rally the troops instinct in a society in a crisis, which is good because it gets us behind things like social distancing and, and not going outside and, and, you know, queuing up for an hour outside a grocery store and, and doing it, you know, with a forced smile on our faces. So that's a good thing, but it's, it's absolutely a bad thing if it um, dulls our instincts to complain about very serious and obvious shortcomings that are just, you know, every day we learn about them. I mean, yesterday we learned that the, there were something like 65,000 masks that had been distributed to care homes in Toronto that were being recalled because they didn't work. Yeah. I mean, that's just completely outrageous. And and I feel like when this is all over and done with, there's just this ever-growing list of things to say, why did this happen and how can we make sure that this never happens again? I mean, in terms of the data itself, I think you're right that it, it's not really anyone's fault. Not testing people is problematic, definitely. But I don't think there's any way – I do think that governments could do a better job, and I think they've been progressively doing a better job in terms of giving us useful data on a day-by-day -day basis to give us some hint of progress. You know, because forever – you know, at the beginning, it was just like, here's the number of cases, here's the number of deaths, here's the number of hospitalizations. And hospitalizations and ICU beds occupied is another good indicator if you don't have – testing. But, you know, it's they're not, they weren't even comparing it to the previous day. What are we supposed to do with that? Yeah. I think feel like they're doing a, a relatively good job, better job than that. Ontario in particular has been throwing data at us what they have. Like it's pretty impressive. You can download the details of every single confirmed case like right down to the postal code of the public health unit that reported it. But they're not really synthesizing that data for us. It, it that's our journalists. job. That's our job, right? Yeah. And, and I think we are doing a pretty good job. I mean, that's, I guess what I'm asking is like this narrative, you know, what is our role here? And it seems like we've taken it as our role. Like I'm reading, you know, in the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne, like reassuring people, you know, like at the beginning, it was, I think a lot of media, I think rightly said, it, it's our role to make sure people take this seriously and to just like pass on these very stringent measures and make sure people take them seriously. And now there's this reassurance we're getting from media, uh, you know, Coyne writing in the Globe and Mail, there's reason for hope in Canada's coronavirus data. And, you know, like he accepts that, like what we're talking about, that the data we're getting is very flawed and we don't really know, like we're really in the darkness, but he still says, you know, it's great. We're having a surge in the, in the testing. It's almost 400,000 tests. I think he rounded that up by almost 50,000 um, to get to that almost 400,000. And I think that he's taking it on himself to reassure people like that's the media's role is to congratulate people for taking this seriously and for isolating in place. And I'm not sure that's our primary role right now. Like, I don't want to be a downer. And I, I, th I think there's something to be said for just like, you know, unifying people. And But like, I don't think the virus gives a shit about fuzzy, warm media narratives. Like, I'm hearing a media narrative that our leadership is rising to the occasion and they're finding their best selves. And I'm hearing a media narrative about the public really finding a sense of community. And, and there's wonderful stories to support those narratives. 
But the only story I really care about is like the story of the virus. And if we don't have, we can't tell that story because we don't have the information, then I think our role becomes why the hell don't we have that information? And getting people angry to demand those tests. Like it seems like our role shifts to that is equipping people with the information they need to get more information, to demand more information. Oh, I mean, I, th- I think it's both. I mean, if, if Andrew Cohen feels hopeful and, and he can find reason for that, then I, I, I'm all for him expressing that. I don't think it has to be that or, um, demanding that there's more testing. I do think though, I agree that I haven't sensed enough to my liking anger or annoyance at the obvious deficiencies that were there in this system that, that we were promised was had been ready for 17 years after SARS to deal with this. You know, I mean, part of it is, is, is getting angry going to do anything? I mean, is the Ontario government not scrambling to get more testing capacity because people aren't upset? I guess, you know, it's still politics. I guess that's kind of how things work, but I, I doubt, I very much doubt that anyone made a conscious decision <laughs> to, to ramp down testing, but you never know. I, I mean, one thing I do think is that you're right to be focusing on Ontario, not because Ontario is the, the center of the universe, but because I do feel like the Canadian media, and maybe it's just because there's so many journalists concentrated on Parliament Hill, it's like the the headline event every day is the Prime Minister's and Dr. Tam's press conferences in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And and they're, they can't, as I say, all they can do is present mashed up data. I, I mean, this really is, I think, better looked at as 10 separate outbreaks that 10 separate healthcare systems are trying to manage in very different ways. And to some people, that's frustrating. To me, it's a useful experiment, a gruesome experiment, but a useful experiment in in hindsight, or it should be, to figure out what the best way is to solve this. I mean, this is a feature, not a bug, of the way Canada works. I mean, the feds control the borders. They control employment insurance and other sort of things they can do like that. They can put teeth behind the Quarantine Act and things like that. But this is really a provincial thing. And you can see it, you know, Alberta is testing more people than almost any jurisdiction in the world. Ontario is completely letting down the side. So it is completely frustrating, but I I think there's reason for both annoyance and anger, but also hope. And because I I don't think there's any point in hopelessness. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not advocating hopelessness. I I just don't want to kid ourselves. Like, I think that we, we are always prone to tell ourselves like, we're really doing it. We're better than the States. We're all in together. And uh, this is time to support our leaders. And it's just so convenient for it to become a place where like Christine Elliott just was like, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to try to find out more about this, why we're not testing at capacity. And that just kind of like gets by everybody because we're all locking arms and we're now like in this like phase of congratulating each other that we're doing it. I hope we're doing it. But. I don't want to delude myself. Like I, I hope like the vibe right now as we talk this Wednesday morning is that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I don't feel confident in that yet. And I and I, I want to kind of push every button that gives us the information that we need. Like that's the most important thing is like, yeah, you know. No, I, I agree with that. And, and and if I hear another person congratulate us for not being led by Donald Trump, like my head's going to explode. I mean, no other country in the world is led by a psychopath <laughs> like that. This is not something to be thankful yeah. for. <laughs> So, Chris, we, of course, duly note things that are going overlooked and lots of stuff is going overlooked as we are monofocused on coronavirus. I just want to uh, give people an update on this story that I brought up about these two Métis hunters who were killed in rural Alberta. 
An arrest was made. Anthony Bilodeau, 31 years old, of Glendon, Alberta, was charged with two counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Jacob Sansom and his uncle, Maurice Cardinal, who were laid off and were hunting for moose to feed their families. The RCMP has said that they have no reason to believe that this is uh, racially motivated. And uh, a number of, of uh, voices in the community of Métis people who say that they have been threatened with murder when they have been exercising their rights to hunt on Crown land raise an eyebrow at the idea that it's not racially motivated. I can actually conceive uh, of people involved in this ongoing conflict of uh, these incidents of people hunting on Crown land and then getting threatened by people. A lot of that land has been leased to farmers. And I'm sure that a lot of the people who don't like the hunters there are certain that there is no racial element to it. And I think that a lot of the Métis and First Nation people who have the right to hunt there would argue otherwise. Yeah, it's a crazy story. Duly noted. Chris, do you have something for us? Well, unfortunately, my duly noted is about coronavirus. <laughs> so right. I, I'm sorry to drag us back to that, but but we touched on it a little bit, but I, I am astonished still at how bad the government communications have been from various levels in terms of very basic information about what we have to do, what we're not allowed to do, what we may do, what we're prohibited from doing. You know, it started out, you had these rules that said you have to, if you're returning from abroad, you have to go straight home you don't go to the grocery store. You don't go to the drugstore. You self-isolate for 14 days. The sheets of paper that people were being handed at the airport did not say that. They didn't say anything about not going to the grocery store right. or the drugstore on their way home. And what percentage of people do you think did that? 90%? I mean, people need groceries when they're coming back. And now we've gotten to the point where you've got various mayors sort of barking at their constituents for doing things that they sort of just seem to consider unseemly. You're going for a walk. This is an unnecessary walk. You walk through this park in a circle. You're supposed to only walk straight through the park. Well, if you look at the law, certainly in Ontario, there's nothing that says that you're not allowed to hang out in a park with members of your own family or kick a ball around mm -hmm. or throw a Frisbee. There's nothing. And yet, especially in Ottawa, you seem to have bylaw officers just basically freelancing the law with the full support of the, the, the city government and the mayor. That dad with uh, who was taking his autistic kid out to an empty field to run around? Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing in the, in the bylaw that he was – or that he was threatened under that says anything about playing soccer with your son in a park or indeed anywhere else. And so I think that, you know – this is a real threat to the solidarity that people are are showing here is that if you can't take a walk in the park with your wife or your son or kick a ball around harmlessly that's not on i mean we need to we need to know the rules those rules are not complicated they can be put on a website you shouldn't have to click seven links and then read the actual order in council to, to figure out what you're allowed to do in a park or not and i don't understand it's like it's like they don't even trust us to tell us what we're allowed to do or not uh, they just hope that if they yell at us enough, we'll sort of just calm down and stay indoors enough. But that's not how it works. You know, it, it, we, we should have clear rules about what we're allowed to do and and what we're not if, if we're expected to toe the line. Yeah. And you know what? This is really being felt differently by different people. It has a lot to do with how much space you have. Uh, class is an aspect of this. Race is an aspect of this. We're hearing reports of cops, you know, really uh, cracking down on black people going to, to a grocery store and then, and then oh, oh. They turn back because the lineup's too big. What are you doing out? You didn't buy anything. We're seeing, you know, we're just losing our rights and, and we, we accept that. We're losing rights to assembly. We're losing rights to, to worship. You know, we're losing a lot and, and we're losing it in different amounts depending on who we are and where we are. Our access to the outdoors, you know, there's there's some kind of balance here. I think people are accepting a huge limitation and, and, and just loss temporarily. 
but I think that there has to be on the other side as well, an understanding that like people are dealing with really extreme situations within their homes and the needs like just to keep uh, sanity and to keep people on the level. And, you know, if you've got uh, kids that you need to air out, uh, if you need to get away from a bad part, there's all kinds of different circumstances. And we, we need like to somehow balance the stringency with compassion from authorities and just like a little bit of flexibility. But it's just, you know, my fear is, of course, that it just becomes an instrument, a cudgel to like kind of lay down, you know, types of inequalities that were always there. There's a whole other question about the clawback after this is done, uh, which is an important one we shouldn't forget. Uh, duly noted. Duly noted. One last thing, Chris. Uh, I, You know, it's good days and bad days. I'm having a bad day because John Prine died uh, mm. The news came out last night uh, as we're recording this on Wednesday. You, uh, I don't know. There's things that are happening to people I actually know. Uh, it's just you never know what's going to kind of sneak up on you emotionally and the kind of you know connections we have to people through their work. This one really uh, knocked the wind out of me. I, I, you happen to be a, a listener of John Prine stuff? I'm a casual listener of John Prine. I very much appreciate his work. I, the feeling that you're describing, I got actually from uh, Adam Schlesinger dying last week of Fountains of Wayne, which is very different music, but has really been the soundtrack to my life. <laughs> I'm a power pop guy. Yeah. That, that really kicked me in the gut as well. And yeah, it's, it's a weird, I found it a weird feeling like, cause there's so much close to home to focus on. And then, oh, and it's, it's actually like, I, I got to thinking too that it's, it's in a way, it's weird how few famous people have died, which is a macabre thought. But, um, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, you know, but I think both, I would encourage people to listen to both John Prine and Fountains of Wayne. It's sort of a, it's sort of an upper and downer type. Yeah. Of- Double bill. I, ch- I never listened to Fountains of Winter. That you know, like there's there's so many great songs of Prines that people are sharing and, and remembering. I, there's like I just can't get out of my head. Saddle in the rain, not the studio cut. There's a live album that has a much better. Uh, it's just a weird riddle of a song, and it's just got this itchy hold on me and and um, kind of haunting. And I don't know. That's just really sad. Rest in peace, John Prine. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So, Chris, let's talk about uh, this miserable industry that we work in. Mm. So, Torstar, uh, Toronto Star Corporation, um, they're laying off 85 people during this. They just announced that this week. I think that's in addition to the hundreds of people who have been laid off in the last 12 months by Torstar. The executive team has announced that they will be taking a 20% pay cut so that uh, if you look at the 2019 compensation, that would mean they'd still be averaging the executive team of Torstar about $760,000 each as they are laying off journalists who uh, have been working around the clock to keep people informed. That includes $902,000 in bonuses to Torstar executives. And I want to share uh, a comment uh, that a Torstar employee shared with me. Of course, I will leave their name out of it. They said to me, it's really disgusting. What do they even need all that money for? They could take a massive pay cut and still be able to send their kids to private schools and everything else. Over in your neck of the woods, Chris, Post Media. Post Media has not announced new layoffs yet. Of course, there have been layoff round after layoff round in recent years. Instead, your CEO, Andrew McLeod, says that he's going to be taking a 30% pay cut. And uh, everybody else who works for Post Media should expect to see their salaries slashed as well in response to COVID-19. Andrew McLeod writes, uh, as CEO, I feel it is important to lead by example. And so my salary will be reduced by 30% while we manage through this crisis. So Andrew McLeod's salary last year was $824,000. So if he reduces that by 30%, you can do the math. But his total compensation was uh, just under $2.5 million with the bonuses. So if he takes a 30% salary cut, and everything else stays the same, that would mean that he will only make about $2.2 million this year. So it's cool of him to take the hit like that and lead by example. $7.4 million is what the top five executives of Post Media took uh, in compensation last year, which is like 74 to 93% of what Post Media expects to get from the media bailout. I also received, Chris... Um, a comment from one of your colleagues who will also remain nameless. They are such scum, says this postie about post-media executives. We've been working our asses off for the last three weeks and they reward us with salary cuts. What happened to the media fund money? What happened to the media fund money? Well, first of all, I think scum is way over the top, but it does. I think the problem when executives take pay cuts when they announce a percentage is that, as you say, you can run those numbers and then you can fit several rank and file employees' salaries into the 20 or 30% pay cut that they're taking. And so I'm never convinced that it really sends the message that they think it's going to send. Yeah. Because 30% of $800,000, yeah, okay, it's a proportion. But if you have a some grunt in the newsroom making 40000 that plummets you below the poverty line. So it's not really the same thing. I would sure like to see some calculation uh, or, or some explanation of, so you've got the media fund. Now you have a 75%, what are they calling it? The, the sort of salary subsidy from, from Ottawa. Yeah. The, the COVID-19 thing. And, and, and Torstar was saying, oh, well, you know, we would have had to lay off even more people if it weren't for that. And I think, well, hang on. I mean, 
you know, I would like to see their work, <laughs> you know, 20% off all your executive salaries plus 75% of all the salaries of the people you're laying off. Are you really that caught short? And so, yeah, I, I, I think it's something that, you know, rank and file employees absolutely deserve to see, deserve to know, you know, it shouldn't be difficult. It's just a basic balance sheet. Here's the money we're getting from Ottawa for being newspapers. Here's the money we're getting from Ottawa um, because of COVID-19. Here's the money we're saving from executive salary cuts. Let's let's see the shortfall. Um, I think that's a minimum. You know, we were talking about sort of government transparency earlier. I mean, I, let's see some transparency uh, from these corporations. I think that's the least that their employees are owed. Well, and, and what about the public? I mean, the employees are angry and the employees deserve, uh, I think, some transparency. But this is public money. So like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that buy the public? Like, is there, you know, some of this is just common sense stuff. Like if I go to my rich uncle and I say, hey, I'm having trouble paying my mortgage. Can you help me out? Like I have lost some of my privacy. Like I, I'm not going to show up to his house a week later in a fancy new car. You know, like, like there's some expectation <laughs> yeah. of accountability. You know, so what, what are we paying for? Like the media bailout money, you and I were not on board with the media bailout ideologically, but okay. We lost uh, a different side of this argument. One money was made available. The purpose of this money, the pub, what does the public get for giving a 25% salary subsidy, which was the original media bailout money to save jobs. So the public gets more journalism. And then now what is the point of this COVID-19 75% temporary salary subsidy to save jobs? Torstar is taking the money. They've said, we think we qualify for the 75% subsidy. They're taking the money and they're slashing jobs. Yeah. Post media took the media bailout money and continued to slash jobs before COVID-19. Now they're slashing salaries and we don't even get a basic level of like transparency on, hey, when you took that percentage of the salary, was that before the salary cut or after? Can you show us the numbers of like it, it, none of this makes a lick of sense to me? Like, no, but I, but I mean, it never does. Right. I mean, it doesn't make it, it. We don't get that when we give money to GM or Ford. We don't get that when we God knows we don't get that when we give it to Bombardier. In fact, Bombardier is pretty much straight up with it. We're taking this money and we're giving it to our executives and then we're laying people off. I mean, this is this is just extending the same corporate welfare scam to a new sector or at least a new sector in a more sort of explicit way with this sort of veneer of saving independent journalism on top of it. I, I think that's you know one of the main reasons that I thought it was a bad idea is that you're absolutely right that people deserved accountability for this, but governments are terrible at demanding accountability from the people they give money to. Um, they only give money to people if they see a, an advantage to it. And so, you know, accountability is not really part of the game. It's more acute in journalism because supposedly we're, we're supposed to have all this, this credibility. And so you, you, it would be nice if our, uh, you know, these are public companies. They could just put it in their annual report to show it where all the money's going. But that's not how it generally works. Well, it works that way. If like if you're if you're handing out the money, you can name your terms. And it was contemplated when they put together an expert panel to advise the government on on this media bailout. The panel raised these concerns. They said, you know, uh, what about the possibility of putting limitations on the amounts that could be received by a journalistic organization that gives executives large bonuses? They brushed that off and said, oh well, that would be really unusual in in, in the context of a tax credit like this. We can't do that. So, you know, like it created a situation where critics like me were saying, well, what's to stop them from just taking this money and putting it in their own pockets as bonuses? And then we find out that like the figures roughly match up of the amount that Post Media expects to be getting in the amount that they're paying out in bonuses. Uh, this is like, 
I don't know what to say about this. I, I take no pleasure in the fact that this has panned out in just about the worst case scenario that I was worried about from the start. But, you know, at a moment when we are most reliant on journalism as, as an essential service, you know, what what I read in post media papers are, you know, polls showing that the, the public supports media bailouts. There's a long string of of supportive coverage of the media bailout in the papers that are receiving the bailouts. That's the way this is getting discussed. Well, it's especially frustrating, I think, to see that, you know, this is a time when I could get behind the government bailing out media organizations because this isn't any fault, you know, for all the things, for all the self-inflicted wounds the legacy newspapers have inflicted upon themselves over the years, COVID-19 is not one of them, right? It's the same with any other business. I mean, people disagree about stimulus spending and recessions and stuff, but not when it's caused by a pandemic. And so it's especially frustrating to see Ottawa pony up 75% supposedly of, of salaries. I mean, tourists are 85 people. Look, it's, it's a lot of people, but that's a tiny fraction of Torres Strait's workforce. I mean, it is really frustrating to see at a time when I could get behind this, the result of a pretty impressive wage subsidy, it seems like from Ottawa is massive layoffs. And I guess the numbers just don't work. I guess it just doesn't make up the loss in advertising revenue. I assume they're not laying off people just for just for shits and giggles. But it is really, uh, as you say, it's kind of a worst case scenario piled up on a worst case scenario. I mean, the worst part of this is that love the bailout or hate the bailout. The bottom line has always been that people who know what's going on have always said, well, it's not enough anyhow. It's not going to work. And the fact that they're continuing to shed jobs seems to be proof of that. Yeah. It's just keeping a model afloat that, that needs to probably needs to die. That's a cheery thought. <laughs> I appreciate your your candor, though. Well, I mean, maybe it doesn't need to die. Look, I mean, newspapers in the, there are, there are newspapers. No, look, there are newspapers in the United States turning things around. There are profitable newspapers. Did you read about I mean, Gannett I, I, this week? Did you read about the newspaper chain Gannett in the states? Uh, are they doing great? <laughs> I think they lost like sixty five percent of their value or something. Well, look, ad revenue is is going to tank across the board. There's nothing. <laughs> You know, so long as the model is dependent at all on ad revenue, and that's probably going to be forever, unless you go charitable or whatever. You know, every business, no matter how strong, is vulnerable to a pandemic like this. That's not their fault. But, you know, I think any government incentive, and, and I think we agree on this, any government incentive that sort of keeps the status quo in place in a business model that at minimum needs radical rethinking is not a good thing. And we're seeing that now. Yeah. Just getting a note right now as we're talking, like, it seems like we're just determined to go out in the ugliest way possible while stripping, like, so much of value from what we do. Like, uh, you know, is. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know how much people really, I don't know how much your average person cares. Like, I think that Canadians are being pretty well served by their media these days. Um, I mean, how can it be true? How can it be true that we have, like, you know, tens of thousands less journalists than we did a decade ago and we're still being served well? Like, it's just impossible. Oh. Like, there's, you don't know what you don't know. And then everything else, like, listen to this. The Canadian Association of Journalists is putting this message out that um, they're hearing from journalists that news stories are being vetted to ensure that they do not contain anything that would offend the business community in the interest of preventing ad losses. Like, you know, it, sometimes it is better for something to just die so that something else can, anyhow. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, to your question, how can Canadians be well served? They're well served by journalists doing good work. I mean, I, I, it's it's out there to see. Yeah, there's tens of thousands fewer of them, 
but I mean, that's the market spoke. You know what I mean? Like what's left, I think, is doing really good work in the pandemic. I agree with that. I think that on an individual level, journalists are working harder than ever and are finding their purpose more than ever. But, uh, you know, the mantra of doing more with less, it doesn't work like that. You do less with less. Oh, this is a depressing episode of this show. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm in a bad mood today, but uh, I thank you for enduring it with me. Uh, no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not in a great mood either. All right. Uh, this too shall pass. Thank you. That's your shortcuts. Listen, it has never been easier to support the work that we do here. You can get ad-free versions of our shows. You can pay us in Canadian money for the first time ever, and it all takes less time than ever before. When you click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join, and you can pay any way you want, and then like instantly, bloop, you'll have a premium Canada Land podcast feed automatically installed on your podcast listening app. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send in. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Uh, we have an Instagram page, which is much cheerier than I am right now, and that is at CanadaLandShow. Chris Sully, where can people find you? They can find me at nationalpost.com. They can find me on Twitter at cselly, C-S-E-L-L-E-Y. And that is basically the sum total of my online presence. Check it out, people. And check out our website, canadalandshow.com, where we have a documentary by Justin Ling on Canada Land's Monday show about the looming catastrophe in our prison system. That is a must-listen episode. There's a new episode of Oppo out this week. You can check that out, too. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 